Welcome listeners in podcast land. You can get this podcast walking. You can get this podcast talking. You can get it working a plow. Matter of fact, you've got it now. This is the Beyond Ring podcast where we explore faith out of bounds. You have arrived at episode four and we are reloading the shotgun and giving you another double barrel guest episode with two passion charged guests who we'll introduce you to shortly. The topic today looks at scripture, going beyond, behind and between the text. So we'll be looking at the Bible. Boring. Matt, we've got to sell this thing. Yeah, but it's the Bible. It's long and it's boring. Look, the Bible is very important. It's our best source of stories of the life of Jesus and the early church, as well as the scriptures Jesus himself would have read. And then there's the poetry of the Psalms of the Old Testament. Man, not the Old Testament. That's so boring. Hang on, Matt. The Old Testament is an important piece of... Boring. Yeah, well, sure. Sometimes it's hard to make sense of, but there are lots of rules. Mm. And killing. There's gnashing. And wailing. Everything is unclean. Yep, like blended cloth. Baldness. Prawns and lobsters. Marrying your flippant cousins. Yeah, that's not something that's ever troubled me. Look, it may not sound like the most adrenaline-pumping topic... But what we think of the Bible, what we understand it to be, what we understand it to be doing, is so important. If you think it's been perfectly formed beyond the clouds and then dropped down to earth in one leather-bound red-letter edition, then you're going to read it in a particular way, and it's going to exert a particular influence on you. But if you see it as a library, a collection of human poetry and prose gathered over a couple of thousand years from diverse cultures very different from ours today, then you're going to read it very differently. And we can't not talk about it. Even if you wanted to ignore it, the Bible and how we've treated and mistreated it has shaped the Western world. It's sworn upon in courts of law. It's appealed to as an authority on matters of morality and ethics. It fills hotels' bedside table drawers. It's like the tissue paper paged elephant in the room. I think the Bible is a record of human encounters with God. A human book with some excellent advice, but sadly not very many pictures. It's possible for things in it to be not true in my personal faith. When will people stop treating every word that they choose to read? Written by men who have amazing insight into faithfulness. A collection of narratives that outline people's encounter with the divine. Uh, It's probably more important than it seems. The Bible was written by humans who were trying to make sense of their lives. Followers of the Christian faith can't actually engage with or tackle any of the complex issues of the modern world without talking about what we understand scripture to be and to mean. There is no psalm of sperm donation and surrogacy or parable of the stem cell researcher. Verses giving today's readers clarity on the ethics of ride-sharing apps, and I'm referring there to Uber, not to Tinder, and cyberbullying are notably absent from my translation at least. So today we have two Old Testament or Hebrew Scripture scholars. Why two Old Testament voices and not a New Testament pro? Well, partly that's about the calibre of voices that we've been able to gain access to, as I'm sure you'll see from this episode. Before we proceed, something we'd like to clarify. I watched The Bachelorette. Uh, Something else we'd like to clarify is our use of the term Hebrew Bible, which you'll hear throughout this episode. It's a term we use instead of the more traditional term, the Old Testament. This more recent shift in terminology is to ensure that other religious traditions, such as the Jewish tradition, don't have their sacred scriptures tarred with the brush of being superseded by the newer or later model, nor redundant due to the latest upgrade. But we've gone heavy on the Hebrew scriptures because it's often neglected. It's the scriptures that Jesus knew and used. It's been terribly read for way too long with our interpretation in need of a pretty decent overhaul. We're also convinced that the approach and the insights that our two guests bring us today 
They're just as applicable to whatever testament you're looking at. So let's introduce the first of our two faith wrestlers. Merrill Blair stands at a speculative five foot five inches and packs a punch when it comes to delivering authentic and earthly theological reflection. Weighing in on any theological issues associated with the Hebrew Scriptures, she brings to the ring an immensity of passion, humour and a refreshing wisdom. Her strict life training includes being a registered nurse for 20 years, a youth minister and now long-term lecturer in the Hebrew Bible at Stirling College in Melbourne. Would you please welcome Meryl? Meryl Blair, welcome to Beyondering. Pleasure. Meryl, you were a nurse. You had a good paying job, a good career. Why did you go to theology? One of the things was the juxtaposition. When I was doing night duty, which I did for five years while I was studying, I found that it was an amazingly helpful thing to be studying theology while nursing Mm. because it taught me some things like pain is inevitable. (laughs) And one of the things that was really, really Um, important to me was studying the Psalms and and particularly the Lament Psalms that sense that if there is enough space for Lament to happen and to be honoured there will slowly be a move through to something else Mm -hmm. and the simply getting things out into language is actually the first step of healing Mm -hmm. Um, and so that that sense of being a space where people could lament not feeling I had to uh, have answers that I had to protect God, especially if they were, they were, they were angry at God. Um, not having to worry about where it went, but just letting it happen and seeing that that itself could be the beginning of, of the move through to resurrection in some ways. Mm-hmm. And starting to recognise that resurrection could be tiny little points of green popping through the soil. The God who's found in the desert, in Exodus, between places, um, the God who's encountered in exile, in the prophets, um, when, when all of the forms of religion have, have been smashed, um, is a God who is going to pop up in little green shoots mm-hmm. and we don't have to name them or hold them or anything else. Like, they're going to happen. You're a reverend, a doctor, and you've been a nurse. You've had all these wonderful ingredients. So you bring a lot to the text, not least of all immense passion. Why is the Old Testament, or as we should say, the Hebrew Bible, what's the its value? Testament, it's pi- or the Old Testament. Exactly. So <laughs> why, what's its, give us a sales pitch. Why give me the sales pitch. Well, what got me going was the way it allowed people to rage against God. I think that was probably the bit that actually sucked me in first was Jeremiah's laments. Mm. And I was going through just a modicum of postnatal depression when I sort of first came into those. And that sense that someone could express directly to God and very loudly their sense of the blackness that was closing in, I found absolutely uh, compelling. And that took me into the Psalms and the Psalms of Lament. Uh, that a lot of people have no idea that there are laments in the Psalms. Mm. And it's an incredibly freeing thing for people to know that there are people who've shaken their fist at God and been angry at God and said, where are you? I have no idea. You're not listening. You've turned your back on me. Uh, You are the enemy. You are the enemy. Mm. Um, In other words, who have entered into a genuine conversation with God. And that's, that's the thing, that in any conversation... Both parties are changed. Both parties are engaged and changed. Otherwise, you're talking to a brick wall. <laughs> and so that has an implication that, that God changes too, that it's not a static brick wall or eternal once and forever and, or unchanging, but there's a dynamic in God or a dynamism of God. Are you comfortable with an image of God morphing, changing? You know, I, I'm most uncomfortable with anything else. And there are these wonderful balances between that sense of a God who is always fresh, new every morning um, in, in his responses. His, I can't believe I just said that. that was very, <laughs> can we edit that out in God's responses? <laughs> I'm suddenly thinking Hebrew Bible and I was just um, going into Lamentations here. Um, I want to quickly pick up on something you said that's very controversial. I thought there was only three 
images of God in scriptures, Father, Son, and Spirit. You, <laughs> you yourself stumbled over the His word. Um, for some, though, it would be surprising that there's lots of images and diverse images. What are the images that are in the Hebrew scriptures? And what are the images that resonate with you currently? Oh, I couldn't even begin to enumerate them because there are so many because um, it, it was well recognised by the ancients that you could not encompass God. You, know, you just couldn't. And therefore, you're always using metaphor. And you know, George Caird was, was um, a great writer on metaphor, one of the first early writers on metaphor, who said that... Basically, all our language has to be metaphorical about God because how else? How else could we possibly? We are always pointing towards rather than describing. Mm -hmm. um, and so right from the beginning of this spirit hovering over the water that has that bird-like image about mm -hmm. it, um, the mother hen who, who nestles, the eagle who bears us up on wings, you know, so many, so many, the rock. The fortress, the tower, the cave, the, the, the place of safety, um, the one who spreads a table, the, the hostess, uh, the one who invites us to eat at the table. Uh, Psalm 36 has got some of my favourite, favourite metaphors in it. Um, this fountain of light, with you is the fountain of light, and in your light all things find light. You know, what a gorgeous, gorgeous image. Um, the place just, just literally hums and buzzes with different images of God mm -hmm. because any single image becomes becoming idolatrous. Mm -hmm. And what idolatry is, is not worshipping something else, it's making it too small. I'm Beryl and I'm a Rotarian. I've been going to my church for 70 years. I tried once to cleanse my chakra and I must have dozed off. Snaps to you, sweetie. That's right. It's time for Beryl's Advocate. Reading the Old Testament is worse than when I watch Game of Thrones. What do I do with all the violence, the nudity and... I don't mind the nudity, but what do I do with all the violence? Is God violent? Should I ignore those bits? I think the issue is that we forget that it's a two, two and a half thousand year old piece of writing and back in those days that was how things were written. Violence sadly seems to be one of those things that humans do. What I think is more surprising is the places where the Bible says don't be like that. So what we have to understand is that it's describing life as life was. It describes God as it imagines God must be because that's how gods were seen as being. And the surprising bits are where it comes out and says something different. So, for example, most of the creation myths of the ancient world had a god who ripped apart another god to make the world. The Hebrew Bible does some really odd things. You get little hints that that might have been what happened, you know, the way they understood it throughout. But when you come to the beginning of Genesis, it shows this incredibly peaceful God speaks and it happens. It shows an incredibly democratic view of God not making a king in his own image, but making all people in his own image. And that male and female together image God. And so I think what we need to learn to do when we read the Bible is um, understand how it fitted into its context and where most of it was the worldview of the time, and then read where it steps quite astonishingly outside that context and says something very different. Sadly, a lot of the Bible can't just be read at face value without understanding a bit of the culture because it's just so very, very foreign and distant. Um, the Old Testament has sort of got tarred with the brush of, oh, that was law and New Testament's grace and... Uh -uh. Um, or other things like, you know, the, the, the violent God clearly met Jesus in the New Testament and it all became love and grace and so we can <laughs> chuck out the old one. The New Testament superseded. Exactly. Testament. It's, it, it's old hat and the very fact that we've called it Old Testament, um, you know, means it's it sort of is the, the, the ugly cousin or the, you know, the... Uh, you know the, the ugly sister. The older brother but, in the prodigal son story is is the very you know the one who misses out on the party. Exactly. Yeah. Well, there you go. And very good of you to pull out a biblical metaphor yeah. <laughs> yeah. and a New Testament metaphor. So and double a New point. Testament yeah. metaphor. I can. I can. Uh, yeah. Well, you You're have bilingual. A for that. Yeah. 
Do you have to that pay was it. for life? That was, that was <laughs> it. That's right. I'm blowing everything. You're, you're multi-testamental. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I suppose my question is, how have we misread the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible? I think we've mainly missed what it's got to offer by the way it's been interpreted, which is this sort of monolithic, it's all either historical or it's all um, word of God in some literal kind of way. Um, and so there has been a sense of uh, the artistry of it just being lost. Mm. Um, and because of that, it's it either has to be taken and gripped with white knuckles with that whole sense of every word in this is the literal word of God and, and, and true, uh, which means crazy, crazy land, <laughs> honestly, <laughs> because you can't do it any other way, or give the whole thing away because we can't make sense of it. Mm. Um, one of the things I, I suggest to my first years these days on the very first, first um, lecture, I hold up the Bible and say, what is it? And you get all these answers. And I'm just waiting for someone to one day say, I always have to give them give them the final little bit. All the, all the things they say are perfectly okay. But waiting for someone to, to say it's a you know two, three thousand year old artifact. Mm. Because if I held up Homer's Odyssey, mm. which in many ways is a very similar sort of age, nobody would try to think that that was a description of life as it is. Mm. Uh, they might think that somewhere... Within it, we would get reflections of life in those days, but no one would try to take every word in it and make it, you know, show life as it is because we understand that history and historical writings are not now how they would have been back then mm. and that that might not have been the main purpose. Um, when I teach literary criticism, I sometimes have students say, Oh, we can talk about it just a story because it's the Old Testament, but you couldn't do that in the New yeah. Testament, could you? Mm. And I say, well, how about the parables of Jesus? What mm. would you do with them? Are they literally true? Mm. Oh, no. Do you see truth in them? Well, of course. Right. So you actually are used to reading story as story mm. and seeing that it is truth. Well said. You made me think a lot about um, biblical authority or... Um, what it means to be biblical. I mean, that sort of word gets thrown around yeah. a lot in churches. And I, I think I was taught to think that being biblical meant taking it for what it says or doing what it says or essentially really turning off any of your critical skills or mm. thinking skills or turn them on and, and just read the text. You know, yeah, that's yeah, what it yeah. means to be biblical and to apply it. And um, so did you find your view of biblical authority had to change or inspiration of, the, of te you know, what Absolutely. happened Absolutely. And I can tell you the moment it became crystal clear for me was preparing a lecture on Ezra Nehemiah and their voices about how Israelites saw, viewed the other, the outsider, at about a time when um, there were some voices in our own churches who were really, really stridently opposed to our college. They didn't feel we were doing at all what we should be doing. We were being far too liberal, all that sort of stuff. And we were getting our knickers in a knot quite a bit about all this. And I started realising that on one hand you've got Ezra Nehemiah saying divorce your foreign wives. Okay, so, so the whole question of what do we do with the other, we cut it off because we're called to be pure and if we're not mm. pure we're going to die. We're going to mm. lose who we, who we were meant to be. On the other hand, you've got, for example, Isaiah 56, which obviously is against that and saying, no, it's about love of God and how we live. And so um, Isaiah 56 says, welcome to the foreigners, welcome to the eunuchs. It takes two, two groups of people who are specifically uh, in the earlier legal codes shut out from coming into worship. And it says they're welcome in the temple. They are welcome as part of my people. All they have to do is, is love me. And I started seeing more and more the, the competing voices. And what stunned me was that they were allowed to stay there. Um, because the Ezra and Nehemiah voice probably won that conversation when you look at, at, at rabbinic Judaism but they allowed the competing voice to stand. Mm. And that's actually been the rabbinic form of 
interpretation mm. is save it all because who knows? Somewhere in the conversation, God's speaking. Mm-hmm. And how dare I close down another voice? Mm. That might be the voice of God. Mm. And it just absolutely set me back on my heels about these other voices mm. in around our, our churches, thinking they deserve they deserve a voice mm. as much as we do. And I started thinking that to be people of you know biblical biblical Bible believing Christians actually means allowing competing voices to exist. Mm. And that's not something you hear very often around the traps. One, one other response was a beautiful sentence I heard from Sandra Schneider's great New Testament scholar who was over here speaking a number of years ago. And she said something along the lines of that the Bible doesn't give us answers to the questions that we have about life. How can it? It was, you know, back then. But what it does do is try to teach us how to be the kind of people who grapple with the questions. Um, Because one thing that we do know about life that's not going to change from two and a half thousand years ago to now is that it will be full of problems. And how do we become the sort of people who can work our way through the problems? And so for me, that's the other part of being biblical people. Why do believers cover up their spiritual foundations in rational fortifications, maximizing the logical, minimizing the mystical? Why belittle faith into mere fact? How many truths have been missed and dismissed because they've been spoken by charlatans and hypocrites? How many lies have been accepted and protected because they've been spoken by prominent leaders and eminent thinkers? Can we ever receive truth and perceive lies regardless of who it comes from? There are 14 interview guests who will appear on this season of the Beyond Ring podcast. There are three or four of those who, frankly, I'm still quite shocked agreed to be interviewed by us. I mean, I'm now Skype buddies with some of my all-time Bible nerd heroes. Our next guest is one of those people. There wouldn't be much argument in churches or universities even if I were to claim that Walter Brueggemann is the world's leading contemporary biblical scholar. And I dare say no argument at all if I claimed particularly the world's leading Hebrew Bible scholar. He is a giant in his field. He's written over a hundred books. Think about that. He has written more books about the Bible than there are books in the Bible. Seriously, folks, scoring this interview is like talking to Michael Jordan about basketball, Sashin Tendulkar about cricket, Eric Clapton about guitar, or Kim Kardashian about herself. His knowledge and work rate is so extraordinary, it's almost superhuman. In fact, that's just got me thinking. Maybe he is some sort of Bible nerd superhero. When Walter eats a banana, he becomes Brueggemann. number of Walter Brueggemann. Mm. Wally. Hi, man. <clears throat> Walter, how are you doing? I'm all right. I was actually reading in preparation for our conversation today on uh, on, a, on a blog, I think it was called Pathos or Pathos, and they wrote uh, in reference to you that they love the sound of your voice. They called you the Bruce Springsteen of Old Testament lecturers. How do you feel about that? <laughs> That's pretty... It's pretty fast company. <laughs> <laughs> shall we yeah. shall, shall we call you the boss? <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> uh, 
Perhaps a good yeah. place to start is we'd love to get a sense of you and who you are. You, you've written now, what, over 100 books? Yeah, I think that's right. I don't, uh, I don't keep close count, and it, it uh, sort of depends on what you count, but I think uh, it's hovering just above 100 is wow. what people tell me. Wow. Yeah. So if you line them up, does that mean it's bigger than the Bible? Like, does this this must give you some sort of street cred in the in the theological world to have more books than the Bible itself? <laughs> so you are so immersed in this story. Why faith? What does it offer you personally? What keeps you within this tradition? Well, I just uh, I think it's uh, uh, at a practical level. It's just uh, the text is just endlessly interesting. Uh, at a faith level, I think that uh, uh, the narrative of uh, this uh, God who uh, creates and saves uh, is a more compelling narrative for me than uh, any alternative narrative that I know about. And uh, in the United States, uh, the main alternative narrative is uh, consumer capitalism. Uh, so I understand uh, the narrative of biblical faith uh, to be in uh, deep tension uh, with the narrative of consumer capitalism. And uh, uh, if, uh, if the choice is between those two narratives, then uh, the choice of uh, the biblical gospel narrative uh, is an easy choice. Something I heard you say was that God isn't finished becoming God yet. The way I like to say it is that the, the uh, particularly the prophetic texts in the Old Testament show that God's internal life is unsettled. Uh, uh, you can see that particularly in Hosea and Jeremiah, for example, and that God is uh, portrayed by these poets as uh, redeciding uh, how to be related to Israel and to the world. Uh, and uh, it is, in my mind, uh, a misreading of the Bible uh, to imagine that this is all settled for God. Uh, so I like to think that when I am uh, seriously engaged uh, in redeciding and repositioning myself, uh, that I am indeed in the image of this God who is reengaging and repositioning uh, in terms of uh, uh, fresh modes of uh, fidelity. So yes, the short answer to your question is yes, God is not finished yet. Walter, that's a really um, that's a really sort of enlightening or, or, or different concept for, for me. It would seem that uh, any change in the relationship between God and humans would be because you know, humanity fell short or, or humanity was broken or sinful or... Or, or broke the promises, or broke the covenant with God, and that, uh, and that was due to that that uh, that things had to change. Um, but but you're you're saying that uh, that there's a sense of, of of movement of movement and evolution within God's own understanding, also. Yeah, I would not use the word evolution because that's too uh, that's too loaded, and it assumes that the next stage is always better than the last stage. Hmm. But, but I, so I just prefer the, the, uh, a word like dynamic uh, mm. that leaves open what direction the newness might go. But, but yes, that, that's exactly uh, what I mean to be saying. Yeah. There's another um, couple of phrases that I stumbled over when I was at college studying, and the first was when you described God as nuanced and problematic, a phrase that I loved and was jarring at the time that I heard it, and it has probably come to be quite freeing. But a term I'd love you to comment on that I've read a lot in some of your work is that you talked about God as a destabilizing presence or as a, as a disruptive presence. Can you speak to us about a God who is disruptive and destabilizing? Well, I, I think that uh, uh, they're not everywhere in the, in the Old Testament text, but in many points uh, of the text, uh, uh, God is, uh, is not uh, uh, domesticated to fit in uh, to the status quo, uh, but God is always uh, stirring this pot. And uh, uh, the Exodus uh, is, I suppose, the primary example of that, 
in which one would have thought that uh, Pharaoh's uh, economy was powerful and settled and would go on forever. And uh, the Exodus narrative is basically about God uh, subverting and uh, contradicting Pharaoh. God is always uh, opening up uh, new possibilities and and new requirements. Uh, and uh, I, I think the Bible thinks or says that if God is uh, settled and fixed and unchanging, uh, then God has become an idol. And and when we when we count on God's fixity uh, too much, we are engaged in uh, in idolatry. It strikes me as curious that for centuries we've had very few images we've used to talk about this slippery, nuanced and complex God that's trying to break through. Uh, we seem to have gravitated to largely male and largely power images. What has the Hebrew Scriptures got to offer us by means of a gift in terms of the way it looks at God and, and images God? Well, I, th- I think the, the vocabulary of, uh, of mercy, compassion, steadfast love uh, is more, much more central to the Old Testament than is the vocabulary of power. All the language of uh, the mother God and uh, that sort of thing in the scriptural text is really important to recover. When uh, uh, Moses and Israel is out in the wilderness uh, and they don't have any food, and uh, Moses gets angry with God, and what he says to God is, uh, being with Israel was not my idea, it was your idea. Uh, you dreamed up Israel, and then uh, Moses says, you birthed Israel. The verb means to give birth. And and therefore, Moses is imagining or, or describing God as a mother God who birthed. And that's, that's quite amazing, because that narrative is probably very old uh, in the tradition. Or uh, in... Uh, in uh, Isaiah uh, 49, uh, uh, Israel uh, complains and, and says that uh, uh, God has forgotten Israel. And then the, the poem says, uh, can, a, can a mother forget her nursing child? Well, no, a mother will not forget a nursing child because her breasts will hurt. <laughs> and then the poem says, well, even a nursing mother may forget her child, but I will not forget you, which means, if you take the image seriously, that God is more extremely committed to the child Israel than is the average nursing mother. So it's, a, it's an incredibly uh, daring image uh, that the poem uses uh, because he wants to assure Israel uh, in its uh, sorry state of exile uh, that God has not forgotten. Uh, and uh, obviously that, that sort of image or metaphor about a God as a nursing mother uh, never comes up in uh, the theological rhetoric of the Church. Or in Hosea 11, uh, God is portrayed uh, as, a, as a very angry father, uh, who is uh, sort of throwing a tantrum against Israel, the teenage son, and right in the middle of the tantrum, God says, what am I doing? How can I treat you that way? You're my son. And and this, this shows a, a, a father who is humbled by his own anger at his son. It's just extraordinary poetry. And uh, we, we don't have the, we mostly don't have the patience or the attentiveness uh, uh, to notice uh, the daring kinds of images that are required uh, to get God fully articulated. I love that image of God throwing a tantrum. That's <laughs> that's both... Uh... <laughs> I can relate to that. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite a scary thought, actually. <laughs> yeah, 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 right. So I, I, uh, that, that text that I just mentioned in Numbers 11... Uh, where uh, God birthed Israel, uh, in terms of, of a tantrum, uh, 
the, the text goes, God goes on to say, they, they want meat, and, and God says, uh, uh, well, I'll give you quail. He said, in fact, I will give you so much quail that I will stuff it up your nose. <laughs> well, you know, that, that, that's a text, and that's exactly the wording of the text. Well, we never read that in church because somebody might get upset about that. So, you know, and I, you know, that that was a that was a new text. You know, I had read that text, but I had never noticed it till about a month ago. I was working on it, and uh, I saw that afresh for the first time. So it's it simply uh, requires attentiveness, and it requires patience, and it requires uh, a capacity to. Uh, let the text say what it wants to say without conforming to my preconceived notions. Mm. And uh, that's not easy for any of us. Mm. I'm, I am glad, though, that we pass the peace in church and not stuff quail up each other's noses. So that's probably <laughs> a, a positive on that front. But it, that's, that's a really wonderful and helpful response, Walter, but also seems counterintuitive to to sit with images and to to let them sort of have their way with us, to let them wash over us rather than do what I think we tend to do, and that's carry so much into the text before we even arrive at it. Something yeah. else yeah. I, I was so unaware of growing up is how much poetry there is in the Hebrew Scriptures. Yeah, it means that the disclosure of God is endlessly elusive. Poetry is elusive, and it also means... Uh, that it may have many meanings, and that we have great interpretive freedom. And by and large, the Church uh, has not allowed the text to have many meanings, and it has not granted people interpretive freedom, because the Church has been too eager either uh, to get people's minds straightened out in orthodoxy, or to get their lives straightened out in morality. Uh, and uh, both of those, uh, orthodoxy and morality, work against uh, recognizing the elusive, plural, interpretive possibilities in the text. So that the text is, in fact, a zone of great freedom, but we have transposed it into a zone of coerciveness. For those of us, for the uninitiated, explain who the prophets are. I think when we think prophets, we might think of people who predict the future, or we might think of, I don't know, today we probably think more about our bank accounts and bottom line when we think prophet. Who who were the Old yeah, right. Testament prophets? Yeah. Well, the way I like to say it is that the prophets are uh, poets who imagine the world as though God were a real character in it. The two the two big themes of the prophets are judgment and hope. And uh, judgment, uh, the judgment of God does not mean that God is a, is a uh, supernatural agent who will sweep in and punish us, uh, but rather uh, they, they write poetry that uh, exhibits for us uh, the risks of uh, living against God's intention. Uh, and they just write poetry about that. So in the in the U.S. right now, we're getting a lot of poetry uh, about the uh, about race and about the hate and the violence that comes out of race. And it's just poetry. That's all it is. It's just poetry. And I think that's what the old prophets were doing. On the other hand, uh, their other theme is hope, in which they write poetry of uh, new possibility. Uh, and they often say, behold, the days are coming. They don't know when, but they just imagine futures that God is going to perform. Uh, and uh, I, I think uh, rather than thinking the prophets are so uh, authoritatively religious, they're just poets. Uh, and, and poetry has a way of showing us dimensions of reality that we otherwise uh, cannot and do not see. Um, so they claim um, th that their word comes from God, but if you ask any artist uh, 
how are you able to do this? A good artist will say, well, it just came to me. It just came to me. I don't understand that, but I found myself able to do this. And I think that's what they mean when they say this is the word from the Lord. It just came to me like that. It, it's interesting that you touch on the issue of uh, the uh, racial tension in the U.S. currently. Uh, when I think of uh, who who might be the modern day prophets or the or the prophets of uh, more contemporary culture, um, one of the initial mo- uh, names that springs to mind for me is Martin Luther King, and of course his the, the line that he's most famous for is "I have a dream." This poetic right. kind of visioning visioning of a future. Uh, so is is that yep. the, would would you describe Martin Luther King as a modern day prophet? I would indeed. Yes. Exactly for that reason. Yep, yep. And his his uh, great speech opened up new possibilities for us. Yep. And are there others? Who, who else do you see as the poets and prophets of today? Well, I think Havel in uh, Czechoslovakia was uh, such a figure. Uh, I think Desmond Tutu uh, was such a figure. Lots and lots of people are writing poetry. They They want to... They want to give expression to reality uh, that is uh, hidden and elusive, uh, and I think it is in the, the practice of those art forms uh, that we get new uh, revelatory uh, disclosures of God's reality. It strikes me as, as fascinating that that's the avenue of revelation and disclosure. I don't know, I think of our world today and we have such, we have so many loud and powerful voices. We have 24-hour news cycles and we're hearing yeah, people yeah. in the microphones all the time. But to think of our artists as the conduits of, of revelation and of truth, the people that are painting images as actually the very yep. places in which and, God's and, kingdom emerges is fascinating. That's right. And in the New Testament, it's Jesus' parables. Jesus' yeah. parables are are high artistry uh, in which they are very elusive. So we continue to ponder, what did that parable mean? You know, it's it's not obvious. I'm interested as to how we can actually use then the scriptures to speak into relevant issues today. I, I suppose growing up and we just either quoted a verse or we, yeah. um, you know, we went looking for a, a passage to then use as a bumper yeah. sticker, which I found was yeah. both re- limiting on the Bible and also really unhelpful and limiting on the issue we were talking about. So practically, how can we use the scriptures uh, to speak into to current day issues? Well, I don't think I don't think we can make direct moves from the Bible to our ethical questions. I don't think you can find answers to abortion or to gays and lesbians. So I think between the ancient text and our circumstance is a huge field of interpretation, and to recognize that that field of interpretation is occupied by our vested interest and by our fears and by our hurts. So I think we have to resist uh, the temptation to try to trace a direct line from the Bible to our question. Uh, I think it oversimplifies and I think it distorts. I'm Faith. And I'm Fine. Eating pigs like peace. I say my prayers with my eyes open. I once saw a Christmas tree being put to death. If only the world was made of love. The Bible is really heavy. Do we need all of it? Well, I think, uh, I think uh, all of it is too much um, for a young child. Uh, these are uh, very old texts. And uh, we should not expect uh, that they are easily accessible to us. Uh, So the idea is to give children good access uh, to the practice of imagination in the text. Mm. Uh, Because what could be better uh, than to be grappling uh, with an artistic tradition that shows us the world uh, in a transformative way? 
Walter, thank you so much for being a part of Beyondering. As you go, I wonder if Matt and I could just make a final request that maybe you could find room to put us in a forward to one of your books. There must be a few vacancies, surely. (laughs) You seem to be churning them out so regularly. Surely you sort of... I'll uh, I'll keep that in mind. (laughs) Now, I have an email with uh, uh, Matt's name, but I don't have your name. That's, uh, keep it at that. Keep it at that. We'll just go through me. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> uh, well, Walter, thank you so much for your time and for the gift you've been, the scholarship you've offered and your insight and wisdom to us, but to, to the wider scholarly world. We've really appreciated your time. Well, it's great to uh, talk with you and uh, I'm uh, grateful for what you're doing. No worries. Well, thank you for coming beyondering with us, Walter. Okay. Goodbye now. Bye for now. Oh, there you go. Well, what did you think, Matt? They say don't meet your heroes. Oh, tell you what, man. <laughs> I really liked that he was so interested in... He talked about the prophets as the poets, but then he was so then interested and so valued the life of the what the creatives offer our community so that the life is... Um, is given such great depth and value by those creative voices so the poets and the musicians the storytellers in our midst and so he talked of of the prophets as those poets but also i think in in your comments you asked a question towards him of um yeah our culture is so busy and and uh, we've just got so many people crying for our attention uh, and yet so, so amongst that, it's those who actually speak out of an inner life, out of an inner, inner creativity, out of this voice that comes from a different place, uh, which, which offers us something, which offers us something sacred. Uh, I think that's a really beautiful kind of image. And, and that's not something that, until tonight's conversation, I had, had really considered before. Um, I love the, he, when we pushed him for some further examples of, um, of modern day prophets, one of the first he mentioned was a, a, a Czech guy, that's a Czechoslovakian, Václav Havel, uh, who was the first president of, uh, of, Czechos- of the Czechoslovakia following the fall of the Soviet Union uh, and the fall of the Berlin Wall. Uh, and he was a playwright. And that's a story that's always, ca- that's really captivated me that when this Eastern European nation finally found its freedom from underneath communism, the person they went to was a playwright, not this hard-nosed politician or administrator who could, you know, bring the bring the country logistically back together. Who could organise, you know, manufacturing. It was a playwright. It was a storyteller, a man who could put their their pain and their passion into words, and who could, yeah. I just think that's that's so beautiful. And that's why I loved the idea that the Bruggemeister uh, had about the destabilising or disruptive, mm, mm. and he. In another, in some other stuff, I heard him say he talked about when that's a, in a happens in a positive way, we call it a miracle. Mm. But when it happens in a way that shatters our worldview or that causes us to see the limits of our cultural worldview, or we see it as negative and hence disruptive, but we actually need constant disruption because we cling to certainty, mm. to wanting to be satisfied, to control to all these things that actually need to be disrupted because we will always pursue them and they will always be unhelpful to attempt to attain. Mm. So actually we we need to put a hand up and say faith is me saying I need that godly disruption. Mm. So in reality we're actually in a constant battle with the text. If you like our ego is in a constant battle with reading this thing looking for what we really want to hear but needing to remain open Mm. if we approach the text in the way that we want to approach the text we actually do it a great violence a great disservice yes Mm. and the the classic Meister Eckhart quote was God rid me of God Mm. is almost that Mm. how does this image challenge me Mm. how does this idea confront me Uh, what's it helping me see about myself that I need to see we can return to a favourite piece of art and keep viewing it over and over again and keep finding something fresh or meaningful or some some depth in it even even upon multiple viewings is not because 
it has something new to offer us when we arrive in front of it but because each time we arrive in front of it we are changed we have experienced new experiences we have absorbed new stories in our lives and so we are different each time we stand in its present and consequently it reads us it reads through us differently uh, that's why we keep coming back to our favorite works of art So to find out more about either of our guests, check out the website, beyondering.com.au. There you'll find the answers to the questions we ask each of our guests as to who they would point us towards. Beyondering is about connecting us to sources of wisdom that will lead us into new places. So we asked Meryl and Walter, who else beyond themselves would they point us towards? And whilst you're there online, why not jump on Facebook and kick around the ideas that have been kicked around here today. Whilst you're at it, subscribe on Facebook to our mailing list if you haven't already. Next week, we are going to eternity and beyond with Bishop Spong. When I define God, I don't define God as a supernatural being who lives above the sky, who is capable of doing miracles and is going to come to my aid if I pray hard enough. I describe God as the source of life calling me to live. And if God is the source of life, the only way I can worship God is by living, by living fully. And the more fully I live, the more I think I make the life of God visible. I define God as a source of love, calling me to love wastefully. That the love of God is like a, it's like a sink in the basement of your house that you plug up the, the drain and you turn the faucets on and the water pours out and it fills up the sink and it flows out all over the floor and it fills up every dirty crack in the floor. And it doesn't stop to ask whether that crack needs to be loved or deserves to be loved. It just loves. That's the that's the nature of what what I call the love of God. And if God is the love, if God is love, if God is the source of love, then the only way to worship God is by loving. Bishop Spong has been a controversial voice over the years, but we are keen to hear what he's got to say and we're keen to hear what you think of him. So plug in next week. So until next time, thanks for coming Beyondering. Beyondering is supported by the Progressive Christian Network of Victoria. Join the network, find resources and learn about upcoming events at pcnvictoria.blogspot.com.au and Common Dreams, an alliance of religious progressives in Australia, New Zealand and the South Pacific. Visit commondreams.org.au to learn more about the next Common Dreams conference to be held in Brisbane, September 16th to 19th, 2016. Edited by Shaz Mullins and... Produced by... Adam Ball by Ball.